Our initial signature strain is sweet cake. And that's a strain that no one else in Michigan has, as far as I know. It's pretty niche, even if you kind of look at the more developed markets like California. And that's divorce cake times Skittles cake. So I really love that strain in particular because it has all of the classic kind of like ice cream cake attributes where it has the chunky buds, incredible trichome coverage. You're listening to Cultivation Elevated, hosted by Michael Williamson where we discuss vertical farming and the future of cannabis and food production. You'll be learning key insights for vertical farming success from leading industry operators, growers, and executives. If you're a grower or owner looking to optimize your existing or new indoor cultivation facility, or anyone looking to cultivate more in less space, we've got you covered. Cultivation Elevated, sponsored by Pip Particulture. Hello and welcome to another episode of Cultivation Elevated, sponsored by Pip Horticulture. I'm your host, Michael Williamson, and I'm here today at Sweet Cut in Kalamazoo, Michigan, with Daniel Algaz, Director of Cultivation. Thank you very much for having me. I really appreciate you taking the time today. My pleasure. So, for those people who are listening at home, can you tell me, you know, kind of paint the visual picture of of Sweet Cut and kind of what that entails? Sure. Sure. Yeah, so it's uh, about a 16,000 square foot facility here just within the city limits of Kalamazoo. Love the location because we're really close to the highway. That doesn't always happen with cannabis facilities. You know, we have about just over about 7,200 square foot of flower and canopy, a little bit more canopy if you were to count the bedroom. You know, we have four 1,100 square foot flower rooms, which are dual tiered with the pip racks. Um, we have one triple tier bedroom that's about a thousand square feet and we have an R and D room, mom clone post harvest with dual dry rooms and a nice office area with windows, which is also rare. That's also rare. Yeah. Yes. No, it is. It's funny you say that, but it is nice that you guys are right off the highway. You can go get a real meal down the street. Yep. You know, you're not in the middle of the woods, which is a common kind of, uh, kind of thing sometimes because of, uh, local municipalities being less friendly or more friendly. It sounds like the local municipality is pretty friendly to cannabis. Absolutely. Uh, I love working with the regulators in this state. It's a little bit of a contrast, I think, you know, coming from Colorado market like we did. Um, they're a little bit more aggressive about uh, enforcing violations. And it's nice to work with people here that really just like want you to succeed. Totally. They want that tax money, right? Hopefully. So how many employees do you guys employ here at Sweet Cut? It's about 20 people total right now. Okay. And that's post-harvest and cultivation? Yes, sir. That's split between about 10 people on cultivation and around the same number on post-harvest if you count uh, the leads and managers. So tell me a little bit about you because you're not new to the cannabis industry. Where did you get your start and kind of what's your background or education? Sure. So... I initially became passionate about cannabis in high school, like a lot of us did. Guilty, yeah. And, you know, actually in college, originally I was studying political science. I had my best friend, Andrew. He actually just finished clerking for the Supreme Court. He took that whole thing much farther than I did. But he initially had me convinced that uh, I wanted to be an attorney. So that's what I was actually doing my first couple years of college was studying political science. And I never got higher than a C in any of those classes. And eventually, over a couple of years of that, I was like, this, I, I do not have the skill set for this. Was it skill set or was it interest? It was interest. Yeah. <laughs> That's usually the case, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, at the time, I had just started going to Texas A&M, and I just happened to have uh, a couple of my smoking buddies who were in horticulture. 
And once I started learning more about that field, I was just so interested because it's this awesome blend of like doing practical things with science. Uh, and that's the kind of career I want to have, you know, where I'm not just in an office all day, but I can do a little bit of both. I can look at my charts and graphs and then I can take that data and apply it to what I'm actually doing. Yeah, that's pretty awesome. And Texas A&M has, I don't know what the ranking is, but they're a pretty well-respected ag. It depends on who you look at, but actually recently we've even moved up uh, in the latest undergraduate-specific ranking. Uh, we were like number three. Wow. Yeah, a little bit lower if you look at the graduate school. Got it. So you made the pivot, right? You were like, all right, I'm going to go into ag. And, you know, most people that go into some form of agriculture, it's almost like their parents were in ag or the grand, you know, it's usually like a multi-generational thing. So we're not seeing, like when you look at your graduating class, I imagine in the ag department, it wasn't anywhere near as big as a, a lot of the other departments. No, sir. About, about 300 people at the time. Okay. Yeah. But so it's great though, because I remember in the early days of looking at resumes, you know, 10 years ago in the cannabis industry, I had, we had one grower who had previous ag, he had an ag degree, but I mean, it was like a pretty rare discovery to have someone that actually had that, you know, pedigree in the books, but then also had some like actual real world experience in the field. But now more and more, we're starting to see people are, and younger people are getting attracted to ag, which is great because with the way ag's been going in traditional agriculture, it's kind of a bleak future. We've really depleted soils and we're now having to rethink how we produce crops and food and other supporting crops, because what we've been doing pretty much since the plow was invented is it's actually been quite destructive. And did you get to learn about some of the, some of that stuff in school or were they still kind of pushing a lot of the traditional ag stuff at that time? Both. It, and it depends on what electives you take, of course. Mm -hmm. But yeah, you know, so at, at A&M, I liked that, you know, I was able to literally, you know, they have a 5,000 acre campus. I was able to go out to a field with a tractor and till it and set up drip tape and you know, do row crops, but then we also had much more advanced horticultural stuff and research greenhouses that I was able to work in a little bit too. So you kind of get to see all sides of the coin if that's what you're looking for. And, you know, I didn't, frankly, I did not know that I was into cannabis when I was in school, like professionally. Okay. I wasn't sure if it was a realistic, you know, I was, I, I still remember in 2012 when Colorado kind of uh, went wreck. And I was still getting my degree. And that was the first time where I was like, this could be a real thing for me. Totally. And th that's exactly what people, that's, it's almost like quote for quote, what you just said. And people are like, wait a minute, this actually might be a real industry or this might be a real, this might be a real possibility for me to enter. It's interesting how it kind of felt real, like it was going in that direction, but then it kind of felt like it gets a house of cards that could have fallen apart at any time. But then I think, yeah, that. 2012 was a big, was a big year for cannabis, you know, when they started saying, oh, okay, you know, we're going to make this recreational. Here's all your metric tagging. It was like, wait a minute, this is probably not going to go away or get beat down by the next president or something like that. So when you got into ag, you weren't necessarily saying, I want to be in cannabis. I'm going to get an ag degree. You weren't connecting all those dots right away. No, I mean, so I've always been into the higher Basically, I, I love like the pinnacle of horticulture, which for me is coffee, wine, cannabis. And so that's kind of earlier in my horticultural career. Uh, I was actually volunteering at a vineyard near A&M, for example, and helping them prune the vines. And I was really 
into that. And then the next summer I worked at a cidery in Austin that was actually trying to grow its own apples and help them out a little bit. And I, uh, still very interested in the horticultural, using horticulture to generate fermentables in that industry. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that's really interesting, but it ended up coming down to, I'm just, I've just always been extremely passionate about cannabis. And once I realized that it could be a realistic career, I also realized that I wouldn't have to have such a low income for a long time. Starting out in the entry levels of beer and wine, you almost have to expect to make $10 an hour for multiple years. Yeah, it's a little tough breaking through some of that stuff. So while I was driving around Michigan the last couple of days, I have seen hops farms, or at least the the remnants, pol- uh, you know, the, the, the telephone poles that yep, were put in yep. place. Yeah. I've seen apple farms, and then I saw what I believe was a lot of Concord grapes vines. So you kind of have all that here on the western part of Michigan. Yeah. Michigan's really interesting because our climate, it is colder, but we have we have enough chilling hours for the good varieties of apples and stone fruit and stuff like that to grow the interesting ones. But then we can also grow a lot of the American hybrid grapes. Is there a rich culture here to tap into from an employment standpoint? Have you found that you finding good employees from maybe traditional ag that are interested in cannabis or not so much? Yes, actually, a kind of a mix of everything. You know, I actually, I think a lot of my best employees had a little, like, you know, one year of experience at a different grow and maybe they weren't appreciated at that grow. Common story. Yeah, Yeah, sure. I mean, like one of my lead growers right now was actually fired from his first grow. uh, And he's one of the most talented individuals I've ever worked with. Sometimes you find these people and you're like, how did, how do they not recognize that? Like, wow. So I've definitely seen that. That's been a big thing for me. Um, And then also definitely about a quarter of my team have worked at like local greenhouses previously and, and have that more traditional experience as well. Um, And I love to see that too, because you know that they worked hard. Totally. And probably yeah. not for a whole lot. Yeah. Um, you have to be, you know, you, you know, there's passion there because it's not something you just go do for a, an easy dollar. So Sweetcut has not been established for very long. You're a relatively new company. Yes, sir. You guys started kind of this, this journey of licensing and design and engineering and all that stuff. Kind of, it sounds like right in the peak of COVID just <laughs> makes things kind of fun while supply chains are falling apart and people are just you know, have a little extra frazzle or stress uh, um, on their shoulders. So where are you guys today? So it's the date right now, or or mid-December 2022, wrapping up the year. And you guys are, you guys have been operating with plants for how long? Since about April. Okay. It was relatively new. And you said you're on your sixth harvest right now? Yes. We just knocked down our sixth harvest on Monday. Okay. And... I guess, what has gone into this commissioning that was a surprise to you? Or was there any elements of kind of this particular startup um, that have um, maybe been extra challenging or or rewarding? I'd say, well, start with the good stuff. Uh, What's been rewarding is actually finding this team. I really like the people that I've hired, and I haven't always been able to say that in the past. I think that, and I think that it kind of starts from the top, right? Like Mark gave me a lot of trust to to fully go out, write my own job ad, target the exact people I was looking for, do all the first rounds of interviews, and then kind of bring them in for the final interview where he would get to talk to them. 
And I feel like by spending a lot of time on that, you know, it was a several month process uh, where we screened about 350 candidates to arrive at our initial 14. I think that was absolutely crucial. And I think we've picked up a, like a really awesome group of people who are intelligent and understand how to communicate, which really is the core of everything. Sounds like such a simple thing to do, right? But everybody struggles and we have all this technology and we should be able to communicate. And no, all the devil's in the execution. Oh, yeah. Well, it's interesting. It's amazing when you ask people, this comes up a lot, you know, like they're like, I'm like, what has been one of the, you know, keys or tools for your success? And like, it comes back to team. It comes back to that word communication. Like it's clear that there's a lot of breakdown that happens that causes a lot of companies unnecessary stress. And they just kind of start, unfortunately, due to lack of communications, they start to almost tear themselves apart a bit. Have you worked at a cannabis facility previous to this one? Yeah, a few. A few. Okay. And you started in Colorado, right? Yes, sir. I, uh, you don't have to name names if you don't want to. That's okay. Uh, I was at Rocky Mountain High for, okay. for almost four years. Oh, yep. And uh, before that, I worked as a landscaper for a year while I was getting my badge situation sorted out. Okay. Mm-hmm. Rocky Mountain High, I don't remember their growth facility, but I remember their retail location was quite beautiful downtown. They're really well known for that downtown uh, facility and in particular the uh, the fun art murals that they, there's actually a Brazilian artist that they had to fly up to the to the States that they like to give it the Miami style. Okay, I yes, got you. Because they're, they're from Florida. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah, that was the Wisers. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, it's interesting how, you know, those early days of Colorado and even California, like it's so fascinating how many people got their first kind of toe in the door in these states because it was like, well, where can I, where can I go do this right now? You know, circa 2010, 11, 12, whatever that might be. Yep. And Colorado was one of those hubs at first. There was always, there's always been California, but in those early 2000s, they weren't very regulated out there. It was more that caregiver model and kind of could do as you please a little bit. But Colorado was really one of the first places to have that pain or pleasure of going through vertical integration and tracking and some of that stuff. So it flocked a lot of really interesting people from all over the country. And now you fast forward. And now 10, we've had a diaspora years. where we've kind of spread back out. Totally. Yeah. Now, now some of the people that I haven't talked to in 10 years or haven't heard that name or that brand in a while now, oh, they're doing this thing on the East coast or in the Midwest. Yep. And so it's nice to watch people kind of spread. Yeah. Um, and I'm actually fortunate I was, I've been able to network with some recruiters, mostly over LinkedIn uh, and develop my network that way. And a couple of my buddies from Rocky Mountain High, Phil and Eric, uh, I managed to get them out here. Uh, Eric's the director of Naturbis in Detroit. Phil mm-hmm. is the director of cultivation for Glorious, which is actually across the street, ironically enough. From here? From, from oh, Eric's Naturbis. facility in Detroit, yes. So fast forward, you were in Colorado for a while, but you put in some time there, four years is not... You know, we talk about years in the cannabis industry, kind of like dog years. I mean, if you put five years in, I mean, you're, that's a long time to come Not going to lie. It was, uh, it was rough, you know, for a while. I almost didn't make it. There was a little while where I applied to get a master's degree in tissue culture from CSU because mm-hmm. I wasn't convinced that, that I was going to be able to get the right role that I wanted in the industry without having a higher level degree. Mm, interesting. Um, yeah, there was a few times where I almost took alternate paths, but in the end was really glad that I kind of toughed it out, even though I didn't always enjoy it at the time, to be honest. I've had those moments where you're like, hey, is this really what I want to be doing? And, you know, it all if you if you haven't done the work that you've done or, or owner operators have done or director of cultivations have done, 
it seems really glorious from the outside perspective, but the reality is, is it's pretty brutal, especially yeah. for startups. And not everyone's ready for that. Or if you're working for someone else where you don't have that, that leadership or creative control, it can, yeah, it just creates a lot of challenges. Yeah. But it seems like you've landed at a really good spot here. I think so. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I think I'm uh, just getting to know Mark a bit earlier. He clearly gives you some freedom to make smart decisions. Um, and he's got a lot of trust in you. And I think when good leaders put trust in good people, it's kind of the key to success. You know, it seems like a, an obvious thing, but a lot of people, they're afraid to let go of that level of control. But I know like your biggest motivator probably is not disappointing Mark, you know? hundred percent. Right? Because- same. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I think a lot of people don't realize the pressures of a, uh, a typical director of cultivation or director of operations, like it's not, it's, 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 it's way bigger than you. And yeah, when you start to understand how much capital has been deployed, how much sacrificing has gone into some of this stuff, it, it's a heavy weight to carry for a lot of folks. And some people are comfortable carrying that load and other people just, it, it stresses them out to a point where they're like, this is too much for me. Yeah. And I think, you know, every, every higher level person in cannabis needs to kind of find their own way. Like, Right now, I have to work like every single day, Saturdays and Sundays, not because I have to, but because I want to, to achieve perfection. Nice. And I get really burnt out doing that. So, you know, I, I come in at nine because I sleep in in the mornings and that's like my thing, mm -hmm. right? I can work every day as long as I can get my two hours of sleep in time. And so everyone just has to find their own thing, you know, to not get burned out in this industry. Totally. And it's, um, it's nice to know like this industry compared to when you got started, I mean, people are a lot more open-minded, supportive. There's a lot more knowledge sharing going on than there's ever been, you know, for the legacy days, pre-legalization and everything. I mean, that knowledge was considered to be sacred unless you were in some elite circle. Like people were not, they weren't communicating via text. They weren't sending videos of their growth. You know, it's just a whole different world. Well, and that's been where. one of the issues with our industry is that people would, would look at stuff as proprietary, even if it's you know, something that general horticulture industry was doing 30 years ago and we just picked it up. Now it's no, now it's special and proprietary. I don't believe in any of that. I like to share my full, the full extent of my knowledge with anyone who is looking to benefit from it, to be honest, because like, how else are we going to network and learn and grow as individuals? Well, the industry has a lot of, um, there's a lot of opportunity for elevation and improvement in our industry. And so it's like, you know, maybe all ships kind of rise in the tide if you can share knowledge with the right people and, and, you know, get information and data from others too, because it can help yourself. It's, it's, a, it's a circle. So I think as long as you're, I guess, doing it with the right people, it's seemingly kind of a win-win situation. Yep. Um, let's talk about the facility a bit more. So we got kind of the overview for flower rooms. You've got some, uh, you've got some multi-tiered stuff going on. Your LEDs were quite new to me or it didn't, it didn't register. So can we talk a little bit about that decision-making and kind of some of the pros and cons uh, on what you're seeing in the ground? Sure. So, uh, you know, in our flower rooms and in our R&D room, we're using a fixture called uh, Cybus, C-I-B-U-S, uh, Cybus Biotechnology, I believe is what they're calling themselves. And that is a really interesting fixture for a few, probably three reasons. It's, you know, it's a high power output fixture. It outputs about 900 watts. So obviously it's more than comparable to a traditional HPS light. It has hot swappable LED bars, which is, I think it's the only fixture I've ever seen with that feature. 
Could it, you explain that to someone who may not understand what that is, who's listening on the podcast, maybe new to cannabis? Sure. What a hotspot bar is? Yeah. So this particular fixture, the, the power unit, the ballast is located in a central aluminum enclosure. And that aluminum enclosure supports bar LED bars that clip in to it on the bottom. And those bars have a row of diodes on them that provide the light. And on almost every traditional LED fixture, the bars are permanently wired to the driver. On ours, they actually are able to clip out um, while the fixture is still on. Interesting. Yep. And that makes it easy to do uh, maintenance up above the light on duck socks. It makes it easy to swap bars that have gone out. The company is actually also experimenting with having finishing bars with more UV. Um, and that's something that I think that they're going to be rolling out in the future. What's also interesting about these fixtures is they have a couple modules on the bottom to actually have a camera for your canopy and also infrared uh, temperature sensors so that you can get more accurate VPD readings. Interesting. Is that something that's like an add-on that you have to kind of pay for later or is that something that's it's active right now? So it's actually a rental agreement that we have for these lights. So it's kind of uh, it's an ongoing thing where we're trialing some of that stuff. Got it. A rental agreement, huh? Sounds smart. Yeah, it was, uh, you know, it is kind of a large ongoing cost. I think if you have the capital to buy fixtures up front, do it. But if you need to decrease startup costs by, you know, a half a million bucks, a million bucks. I mean, that's everybody right now. Doing the light rental is one of the biggest ways to do that. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, I think raising capital in the cannabis space right now has probably been as difficult as it's ever been. I'm sure with different federal law changes and things like that, we'll probably see new waves of capital in the future. But Yep. It's a really hard time for people who are trying to get started up and we're seeing a, you know, a good amount of stuff shifting to like equipment financing in a lot of cases. So what you're saying makes sense. And well, and I, uh, I hear that a lot of the venture capital stuff has dried up in the last year just because of the liquidity in the market, essentially. Well, and investors, I think, have gotten a lot savvier too, right? It's, they've been investing in this space for, you know, now five plus years and, you know, what looked good on paper and what was promised wasn't delivered in a lot of cases. And so now they're aware of that. And so they're just a lot more reserved with how capital is deployed. You know, I know like some people will, like some investors will only invest in an existing business that's profitable and for like their future phasing as an example, but like they're like startup, what state? Like, nope. Like they, I mean, they just shoot it down right away. Um, there's always somebody that's hungry and wants to get in. Yep. So yeah, you had mentioned this earlier. This was actually an existing cannabis operation that was kind of a fail to start. Is that accurate? Yep, that's um, right. So they, how far did they get before you guys kind of came in and took over? So they just had the slab in and the exterior metal shell around it. Um, not even all the studs were in. So it was relatively early point where they realized they were undercapitalized. So you guys were able to kind of throw them a lifeline to some extent or enough made it make sense for them to say, okay, please thank, thank, take this off my shoulders and, and you guys kind of got to work? Essentially, yes. Uh, even though it was, you know, the, uh, this was a million dollar property because it's within the Kalamazoo city limits. So, um, it definitely had a premium, you know, a big premium on it for kind of the type of property you typically look at for this, yeah. you know, which is a big part of why we decided to go multi-tier. Right. Trying to s squeeze out as much canopy as possible. Yeah. You know, essentially when you're already doing a site, you know, you're going to have a lot of uh, sunk cost in that. And then you, you need to, it doesn't cost that much extra to, you know, multi-tier it versus doing a single tier, but your ROI almost doubles on your 
square footage of canopy. It's interesting when, you know, you get legacy growers who are like, double tier doesn't make any sense. And then you start to pencil some things out and you're like, if you're as good of a grower as you say you are, you should be able to grow in any environment under any light and under most reasonable conditions. And you start to look at the math and you're like, wait a minute, it's physically impossible for me to hit the yields that I can hit on a single tier in a double tier if I'm performing well and optimized in a double tier or triple tier environment in some cases for some folks. Yep. And if you're looking for a certain dollar amount from your investors, you need to hit a certain return on investment and to get that uh, initially. And so we essentially had to go multi-tier here. Had you previously worked in a multi-tier environment previous to this one? Yes, actually, this would be my third. Okay. How much insight did you have or um, how much um, responsibility did you have for actually doing equipment selection at this space? Yeah, so my first, uh, when I initially came to Michigan in 2019, I was the director of cultivation for an operation uh, that's still around called U-Baked uh, out of uh, Burton over by Flint. And it was kind of the same scenario over there where I came in uh, with kind of the shell of the warehouse in. They had an initial design, but they weren't super happy with it. Uh, the investors wanted to hit a certain ROI, so I kind of proposed going multi-tier. And it worked out pretty well. It was uh, a big learning experience for me on how to properly utilize vertical growing systems. You know, to, to be able to get uh, two tiers of flour in all of the flour rooms with the existing veg space that I had, I had to go four tiers in veg. Uh, which did end up necessitating a mechanical lift to work on the highest tiers. And there's a lot of bottlenecking that comes with that, um, especially since you then have to harness all your guys into that and really slow them down as they're trying to go through the racks. There's only so much up and down you can do. Um, there's only so many plants you can hold and safely and, and stuff. So yeah, the, the mechanical lifts, I used to see them in the beginning in the vertical farming space because there wasn't a ton of solutions out there. Yep. But I don't see them too often anymore. Sometimes I'll have them for like servicing and changing out lights or something like that. But other than that, I'm, I'm seeing that shift kind of transition now. What made you go with PIP, I guess? Was that something that you had any involvement in or? It was a natural choice uh, based on the location of the project and the pricing, essentially. You know, I also quoted Innovative and a couple other rack systems. And they were pretty much all, all more expensive than PIP was, and they didn't have quite the same level of customer service, which was especially big for me back then because I wasn't nearly as experienced as I am now. Sure. And the fact that PIP was able to work with me and give me a dedicated customer service guy who could make, in that case, it was Dylan out of California. Oh, I like Dylan. He's yep. good. I mean, I like everybody at PIP, but Dylan's, he's yep. solid. Like Dylan. He gets it. He, he was able to do, to really go above and beyond to like help me out in the design and execution of those racks. I've always been impressed with how much like free design revisions. And I mean, PIP is pretty, that's one thing where I'm like, I've even when I first got together with PIP, I was like, you guys do all this for free? Yeah, so I was actually, I didn't realize that I was going to get all the layouts and all the flex wire layouts and all that stuff. Well, get help some companies that. are like, yeah, we'll do that for you. And they're like, for two grand. And you're like, oh, hold on a minute. You know, we're, you know, I know everyone's so busy, but that's something that I really admire about PIP is whether you're a small grow or the largest grow, they really treat everybody the same and they really bend over backwards. Uh, I, I heard of one project that PIP had. And I want to say there was 26 revisions on the design. Wow. And I was like, guys, that's, that's kind of crazy, <laughs> you know? 
Some, but you know, that's that's what they're willing to do. And, yep. and, and I did go through a few revisions myself. I, I ended up turning my veg trays transverse to fit an extra tray into the room. Okay. And we definitely went through through a few different uh, iterations. Well, at least you had a nice blank slate here. I didn't see a lot of columns and stuff that were in like, in really, you know, sometimes we get in these old buildings and you got to like really troubleshoot around all these columns and yeah, there was really very few compromises inherent to this building, uh, except for the 14-foot truss height, which dictated the overall rack height from the beginning. Sure. So you're on a 12-foot rack then? Uh, we got it as close to the ceiling as we legally can. It's okay. it's like it's more like 13. Okay, so you want yeah. like more of a, a yep. slightly custom height? Yeah. Yep, makes sense. It was, it's probably 13 and then a few inches for the carriage system, Something right? like yeah, that, yeah. Yep. We talked a little bit earlier about sometimes the local fire municipality will have issues with something that's 48 inches wide, like a tray as an example, because it captures water and there's something in the code about that 48 inches. Um, but you had the fire inspector come out and measure and our stuff comes in at 47 and three fourths or something like that. Yes, he made it very clear that uh, these trays are 47 and three quarters and that is how they should be discussed moving forward to avoid dealing with NFPA 13. It's, it's nice that companies are doing everything they can to make sure that growers get the best tools that they can get without too much compromise. A lot of growers will, you know, in vertical farming, they'll complain over losing an inch or two or three. Yep. Um, but, you know, getting a, all right, we'll shave off a quarter inch or half inch on the width and, you know, you're still able to achieve your goals. So with your HVAC system, you guys did a couple of things that were pretty smart that I'm now seeing people are understanding the importance of. And it's really around location of supply, and most importantly, location and elevations of the return. Can you kind of highlight some of the strategy in the, your rooms on that note? Yes, sir. So in all of our rooms, uh, including the mom room, all of our air supplies are arranged uh, via a linear duct that runs the full length of the front room. The air dumps out um, the full length of the duct in the downward direction. That allows it to kind of hit the ground and, and homogenize a little bit, produce a little bit of a vortex in the front of the room where there's some clear air. That helps uh, in particular to homogenize the steamers that we have up there. Then it, we do have uh, duck socks that help to push the air linearly down the racks to the extended air returns in the back of the room. Having the extended the returns, which go almost to the floor, uh, enables the airflow to be truly linear and not produce any microclimates kind of on the sides or corners of the room where there's no flow. So yeah, I think you had like, I want to say it was like five or six rows and then you had five or six extended, extended drops on the yep. returns and where the register was on each return was roughly right where the actual canopy level is so that you're trying to pull air through plants, which I think is pretty smart. Yeah, so that's especially important to not have hot spots in the top back corners. Um, that is something that can happen occasionally with the vertical racks. What have been some of the greatest challenges with um, kind of going vertical or in the multi-tiered environment? I would say the single biggest thing is just ensuring that the efficiency of your labor is as close to as close as to what it can be in a single tier environment uh, as possible. And that's actually coming into this facility. PIP had just come out with the Elevate walkways that uh, lock in in between the racks so that people can stand and work normally. I was actually like ecstatic over that. 
I didn't realize before I was doing the design for this or some of the work to start up the facility that that they were going to be out at the right time. And so I just, I realized that that was going to boost my efficiency way more than doing scaffolds, which is kind of my workaround that sure. I have been doing for now. Yeah, years. locking platform ladders from Uline, which they're so big and bulky and then you got to store them somewhere and they're kind of... A yeah, nightmare, I, I'm nightmare. lucky that I can even maneuver those ladders around in this facility. You know, we had a really well-sized aisleways and fronts of our rooms and hallways. Frankly, a lot of facilities simply can't run those at all. Yeah, they can't even make the physical turn because everything's so tight. Literally, they can't go into yeah. the room. Yeah, it's physically impossible. That was actually something I wanted to highlight. So you talked a little bit about it. You kind of touched base on it where sometimes things are like a slightly investor dictated in the design process or executive dictated. And so there always seems to be this kind of push and pull concept around how much canopy can I squeeze in a room? You guys had a pretty good amount of working space, but not excessive. Was that a challenge with trying to hit numbers or did you have any resistance on, on that? To be honest, so in my past facilities that I've done, I've had to make a lot more compromises to get the canopy that I needed in there as far as having the aisle space and the working space that I wanted. You know, particularly like at U-Baked, even though the design does work, you have to spend, you know, five minutes taking your scissor lift around the corner so that you don't uh, hit the wall or the edge of the rack because everything is so tight. I was really fortunate in this facility that when I was coming in, it was already mostly properly specced where uh, we had really good aisle width. You know, one thing I think that sometimes people don't think about with like their first uh, like PIP system, for example, is you need an aisle width that's greater than the four foot width of the racks. Otherwise, you can never properly clean. And we have that here, which is awesome. I haven't always had that um, because you only need to meet, you know, 36 inches for egress typically. So that's what, been what's your What's your spec on your mobile aisle that you have now? In our flower rooms, we have about 52 inches. Nice. Yeah, so are you ever setting up like dueling catwalk systems? Yes. And that, that was actually something that was huge for me coming in. Um, and it just happened to be that they were already barely meeting the spec I needed. So I didn't need to change anything. But because the catwalks are about 20, 25, 26 inches wide, we're just barely able to run two of them, which is actually huge uh, when we're doing cleaning or certain things with harvest uh, or even just defoling, being able to we, you know, we found that we can go across the whole bottom and then across the whole top because we can lock multiple walkways in and it's actually faster that way. Nice. Yeah. That, it seems to speed up productivity. And if you can flank people over a task, there's like that almost natural competitive thing that kind of comes out where all of a sudden, if someone's like really going farther along, you're like, wait a minute, am I either I'm slow or I'm doing it wrong um, <laughs> or that person's doing it wrong. Absolutely. Um, but yeah, I, I've noticed that when you can kind of sync people up on a similar task and they're across from each other. Well, first of all, you have much more better ergonomics. So you don't have people overreaching and spreading stuff around plants or getting fibers on, you know, mature plants or things like that. Um, but because of that ergonomic flow and that, you know, that other person that's kind of keeping a cadence with you, it naturally sets up a, a like an improved workflow. It's just like people are kind of motivated. They're like, oh, well, I started when he, she started. So yeah, absolutely. I like to I like to take two people and put them on an eight foot tray and then have them work towards each other. And you can see who got to the center first. And it, it kind of drives people to work at the same pace and work faster in unison. 
And as a leader, it's interesting because you can look at like whoever the fastest person is on a task. And if you're happy with the technique and the level of quality control, that person might reshape the SOP because maybe yeah. their, their technique or something that they're doing is slightly different. Those people also, I find, make really good like uh, trainers on, on process specific stuff. It's like, how do you elevate everybody? It's always great when someone can trim the most cannabis or defoliates the fastest, but it's like, well, that's great on an individual level, but like the real goal is to, how do I get that person to elevate everyone else so that maybe they can't, maybe they don't get quite to that person's level, but they get some kind of boost or there's usually something that they're doing that's slightly different. If you focus and watch close enough and you're like, aha, you're doing it this way, but you're doing it this way, you know? And sometimes it's silly stuff. It's like, oh, you're pulling, you're, when you defoliate, you're pulling off a leaf and then putting it in your like independently putting it in your bag or a five gallon Homer bucket or whatever it might be while this person is defoliating and they're just putting them in their hand and they're collecting 20 of them and they're only taking this one hand and then dumping it into a bucket one. Yeah, it's funny you say that. That's definitely something we've worked on in the past is the So it's those little little things, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Because of the redundancy and the sheer volume of work that you have to get through, those little tiny things that shave a second here and a second there, they start to add up pretty quick. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, we've been finding that a big part of getting ahead and meeting our, the KPIs that we want to hit is being able to like rapidly move from task to task and having good flexibility with the team. Because an issue I've had in the past is, you know, people will start meeting their KPI and then realize that they can slow down. And what we really need to do is end the task and grab that efficiency and go have them set them on something else. How do you keep people motivated on that note? You know, like, all right, here's the KPI or key performance indicator for people that aren't familiar with that acronym. It can, a KPI can be anything. It can be time to task. It can be, in our case, grams per square foot, turns per year, yep. downtime, you know, all kinds of stuff, right? So looking at whatever your critical KPIs are, and then establishing those with your team. Once they meet a goal, does a bar get raised? Do they get rewarded? Like, how does that all work? How do you keep someone like pushing and not getting complacent, like you said? Yeah, I mean, the bar, I, yeah, usually when the people meet the initial KPI, we'll, we'll raise it, you know, another 10 or 20% to kind of the long-term, uh, okay, now you're a skilled employee and you can really take it to the next level um, if you're going to be with us for several years kind of KPI. As far as keeping people motivated, I mean, obviously you have to have an operation with good culture in the first place for them to want to stay with you. Um, but in particular, we have uh, cash bonuses at the end of the year that are based 100% on performance and how, at what percentage people hit the KPIs. Nice. Uh, you know, money talks, right? It tends to motivate people. Uh, at the end of the day, money equals respect. So you're on Harvest 6. In my world, you're very much in startup phase, but do you feel like you're starting to get uh, any kind of level of comfort in the new facility or is it still kind of like we are pushing hard and, and learning all these new systems? Well, everything's been going really smoothly as far as reaching towards those initial KPIs. All of our process times are way down from where they initially were, particularly on Harvest. Mm-hmm. But uh, that being said, we're really in this critical period where we're figuring out exactly what our environment needs to be and exactly how our irrigation and crop steering needs to work to 
properly utilize the strains that we have and figure out the new strains that we're pheno hunting right now. Because I put a lot of emphasis on everything being perfect all the time, you know, we do need to be here every single day uh, fixing recipes and dialing in environments and figuring out what is going to best represent our grow moving forward. As you guys have entered the market and you said you're getting some good feedback, and I know you're new, so your information's kind of new, but mm -hmm. what are some of the ones that people are asking for? What are the ones that you're really proud of? Like if someone's shopping around in Michigan, what should they keep their eye out for with your brand? I think we're going to have a lot of really interesting strains come out of our pheno hunt very soon that are going to be available in the next few months. Uh, but right now, our initial signature strain is sweet cake. Um, and that's a strain that no one else in Michigan has, as far as I know. It's pretty niche, even if you kind of look at the more developed markets like California. Um, and that's uh, Divorce Cake times Skittles Cake. So I really love that strain in particular because it has all of the classic uh, kind of like ice cream cake attributes where it has the chunky buds, Rock incredible trichome coverage, kind of that uh, bready sweetness on the flavor, but also with a hint, you know, more complexity on the exhale. Uh, you definitely get a hint of that Skittles. And then just besides that, uh, it clones amazing and it has an amazing structure, especially for reduced height racks like we're running. So all of those things kind of combine to uh, make that the first strain that we wanted to bring out with our name on. Nice. For a multi-tiered environment, like, you know, people talk about checking the boxes, but what are those boxes for you when it comes to genetics in a multi-tiered environment? What are, what are those key traits and attributes you're looking at in the plant? I mean, I think a lot of the attributes that I'm looking at for any plant are the same, whether you're in a multi-tier or a single-tier environment in that I'm looking at for it to have vigorous growth. I'm looking for it to have good structure where it doesn't, uh, doesn't stretch too much or remain too low. Uh, but it also needs to have really good disease resistance as well. Honestly, I don't feel like I select very differently for multi-tier. It's just that they have to be shorter. <laughs> They've got to be less stretchy. Yeah, they just have to be less stretchy yeah. and, and respond to, I, I, you know, like they have to respond to the crop steering well and, you know, kind of like set bud and stop stretching when I take them into. You know, it's not talked about enough, but when you look at like a pack of seeds or even when you get a clone from someone or even a professional company, they give you some pedigree information. It's usually like the genetic background. And then it's usually like maturation time, which is usually like... It's always 63 days, always heavy pl yield. Plus or minus, <laughs> plus or minus this, you know? So it's, it, a lot of times I remember when I was a youthful guy and I'd look at that information, I was like, oh, wow, so valuable. Oh, 75 grams per square meter, you know, or whatever it was. And I was like, oh, that's so interesting. Oh, it's done on this day. And then I quickly realized I was like, yeah, it's like a general guide, but it's actually not that helpful because unless it's really a truly early flowering plant or early maturation plant, everybody's environment's different, plants react differently. But it, yeah, it seems like it would be helpful if more nurseries and even breeders um, would talk to you and give you a little insight on how much that plant stretches. When we talk about vertical farming and multi-tiered farming or even traditional single level farming, I mean, you got plants that don't stretch at all and you got plants that stretch three times the size of that plant or more. Um, and so I've, I do find traditionally in startups that if you're not familiar with running those genetics before, 
it's a little bit painful in the beginning when you're like, okay, this one did good. And then you're like, this one's growing through my lights, above my lights. That's a very common thing at first. Mm -hmm. But then you can run the same strain a second time with slightly shorter veg and tighter crop steering and get a completely different result. Yeah. Or I'm always trying to figure out how to future proof and kind of fail safe things for, for new players. And it, it is challenging. Because when you're doing like precision indoor agriculture is what I would kind of refer to as multi-tiered environments, literally inches matter. You know, it's not like there, there's just not a lot of forgiveness in some cases, especially when it comes to genetics. What does the future hold for you guys? What is, what's like the next, let's, what's the goal for 2023 with Sweet Cut? Well, we're really excited to bring out, you know, some new strains that no one else has, obviously. Um, but, you know, the next big step for us is going to be to become vertically integrated at some point. Uh, okay. We do want to have our own provisioning centers. You know, to truly compete in the Michigan market long term, I think that that's where most people need to be to have the margins uh, that they that they need to expand. Can we talk a little bit about the state of the current market at this time? Sure. Yeah. What's What's the landscape look like if you were to paint a picture in term of you know, players in the space, constraints, average wholesale pricing range, things like that. Sure. I mean, we're definitely, we definitely seem to be in that period of the market where there's tons of supply, uh, tons of new businesses starting up and it's becoming, cannabis is becoming more commoditized. You know, like when I first came here in 2019, I could grow mediocre cannabis and sell it for $3,000 a pound. That's why everybody um, flocked here, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. And now if I grow my best cannabis that I've ever grown, it's selling for about $1,000 a pound, a little bit more if you have strong branding, which is actually a huge differentiator. Mm. No, that makes sense. Are you looking at other states and other markets and kind of evaluating kind of how they're going? Because there are other markets. I mean, this is not a common, uh, this is not an uncommon thing in a, in a semi-mature to mature market. It seems like it used to take a lot longer for oversupply to really kick in, but now it seems like people are entering markets and going bigger and bigger than yep, they have before. There's more and more MSOs now that are eager to just jump into new markets right away, and they have a blueprint for how to, you know, get going really quickly. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so the the downward pressure on the market comes faster and faster in all the new states. It seems like, you know, the. The owners and investors here really their their big thing is they want to grow organically and in a way that that makes sense. They want to have a blueprint for success before injecting more money in. Seems um, responsible. Yeah. yeah, I think it's a really smart approach. So yeah, you know we might look at some of the other markets that are opening on the up on the east coast eventually, but you know right now we're really we really just want to focus and you know understanding how to generate the most efficiency in our current building. Yeah, no, it makes good sense. I mean, it's it's a lot to wrangle in. I don't know when commissioning a building really ends, but it's almost like a constant refinement process anyways. There's like the heavier hurdles and heavier dirty lifting in the beginning, and then it kind of eases up. But it's it's never easy and it's never steady. It seems like there's always that quest to be better or, you know, people recognize after, you know, just being in here seven days a week, like you were saying, that there's a lot of opportunity to improve. Absolutely. For a grower that might be listening right now, who is just a diehard single tier, I've always done it this way, this is not gonna change. What would be a compelling reason for them to go to multi-tier from your experience in kind of both areas? Frankly, going multi-tier is all about the variables that you're presented with from ownership. 
uh, if they need to make a certain amount of money, you're going to have to go multi-tier. So are you saying that multi-tier production is generally more lucrative than... Yeah, I mean, you're, you know, you're doubling, you know, most people look at grams per square foot right now for their yield and, you know, you're essentially uh, almost doubling your grams per square foot, almost doubling your ROI when you go multi-tier. You know, there's, there's kind of an opportunity cost when you go single tier and don't go multi-tier because you're spending 75% of the money you would anyway to make only about uh, 60% of the money in the end. Yeah, that's well said. Can you remind me your, what's the square footage of your typical flower room? So the raw square footage of our flower rooms is about 1500 square feet. Mm -hmm. And each one of those flower rooms has about 1700 square feet of flowering canopy in it. So you have more physical flowering canopy than you have of actual square footage of space because of multi-tier. That's correct. So you create. You're creating square footage out of the air. Yeah, a lot of people are shocked when they hear that our building is 16,000 square feet, but we're targeting, you know, 7,500 pounds a year of production. Sure. Yeah, well, even when you spat out your uh, your flowering stats, it's like nice ratio. I'm always looking at ratios of like square footage of building to actual flowering canopy, and mm-hmm. a lot gets chewed up with hallways or poor designs and things like that. So you guys are in a pretty healthy spot, and you're lean enough that... Um, I I hope that you guys have tremendous success, you know, ongoing and in the future. I want to say thank you so much for spending time with me today. I know I probably took a little bit more of your time than I was anticipating. And we were a little tardy today as well. So, but it's been a pleasure and it's nice to get insights into an emerging new company in Michigan. So thanks a lot. I really appreciate the support. Yeah, it was my pleasure. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Cultivation Elevated. Full show notes for each episode, which includes a summary, key takeaways, quotes, and any resources mentioned, are available at pip-horticulture.com forward slash podcast. Be sure to follow and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you're enjoying the content and getting value from these episodes, please leave us a rating and a review at ratethispodcast.com forward slash cultivation elevated. We'll be sure to read these out on future episodes.